The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you've gathered us here before you, before your word, to hear, certainly to learn some things, but we most ask that you will change us, that what happens here this morning would be by your power, according to your intention for our growth and good and change that you would, in fact, enable us to see an amazing grace here in this passage and what it, what it points us towards. You are a God who reigns and who reigns for good, for our good, for the good of your people, for the good of your name. So would you show us that goodness, show us that grace, and by it, grow us up, change us, mature us, As we prayed earlier, Lord, would you, would you clear away all, all barriers, whether they be barriers of sin in our own hearts or barriers of distraction, physical noise, temperature, those kinds of things. Lord, clear them away and speak. Speak clearly about you, about us, about what you are for us, an amazing God. Make the truth clear, Lord, and grow up your church. We want to see Christ honored here. We want to see his name spread and loved in our own lives and in the nation around us. For that, Lord, we ask, would you come? Would you work? Would you bless? Would you teach? Would you convict and encourage and grow? We put ourselves before you in your hands and ask you to work on us and, and build us up for the, the sake of the name of Christ and for the good of his people. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Turn our attention this morning the end of Luke chapter 13 where we find a change in the tone of Jesus' teaching. Over the last several weeks, the passages that we've been looking at in chapters 12 and 13 have all covered a number of different topics but have had a, a few similarities. They have been hard. The types of things the world usually doesn't like to talk about and usually doesn't like to listen to. Jesus has talked about the coming judgment of God, has talked about the need for all to repent, that is to turn in heart allegiance from self, to turn to give total heart allegiance to him. To turn and repent or perish all alike at the judgment. Repent or perish and miss the kingdom of God. That's hard to say, let alone hard to hear. 
And last week he underlined that. He underlined the importance of all this with, with another word picture, the kingdom of God, the great celebration feast of God. The only way into it is through a narrow door, a single narrow door. Faith in Christ crucified. The only way in, though people argue that there should be and try to explain that there must be other ways, other equally valid ways to God, other equally valid ways into heaven, Jesus says, no, there are not. Common perspective of the world, but it's wrong, he says. There aren't other ways, only one single narrow way because of what keeps us out of the kingdom in the first place. There's a reason for that. He's not just mean-spirited. There's something that keeps us out. There's only one way that deals with that. What keeps us out is our own personal sin. We all, ourselves individually, we all do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of ourselves, and love our neighbors like ourselves. We don't do that. We are sinners, and therefore we cannot come into the presence of this holy, pure God. We cannot sit down with him at this feast. And the one narrow door is the only way that deals with that. Christ crucified for sin. So he makes that very clear. Though that's not easier. It's clear and still hard. So there's that. There's that common element in passage after passage the last several weeks, the hard. And then also in common, week after week, we've seen mixed into the hard, this hope particularly hope because of the character of God that we've seen displayed week after week. God is patiently merciful. He is compassionately powerful. He is good. There is a kingdom in the first place. There is a feast. There is a door that leads in. There is a door that is still open. There is a door that he explains to us is, is incredibly important and calls us to come to and points out to us and explains what it is. That's all because God is good, and it still is because he's patient and merciful, and, and he wants people to come. He calls them in. There's a great hope there, and it would be extremely be tragic to hear the hard and turn away and miss the hope. You, you deal with the hard by the hope, not throwing the hope away and, and hating the hard. These two things are together, and and repeatedly, week after week, Jesus has laid it out in front of us. I tell you, this is the way it is. And then the, the hope has been laid alongside of it as he, as he commands and he calls and he warns and he pleads. And now that's going to change. Tone changes. Sort of, if you will. It's as if Jesus speaks and commands and calls and warns and pleads and then steps back and says, Oh. because I know how the world's going to respond. And he begins to weep. Not literally, but that's the tone shift as we come into today's passage. A passage that has in it a, a clear, straightforward point and a sorrowful sigh. Let me read Luke chapter 13 verses 31 to 35, the end of the chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to make two observations, one from the beginning and one from the latter part of the passage. Here's the first one. Resolved. Jesus will accomplish the saving purpose for which he was sent. And I mean resolved in the sense of, here's a, a spoken position statement, and resolved in the sense of he is personally resolved. He has resolved determination. Resolved. Jesus will accomplish the saving purpose for which he was sent. Right after discussing the narrow door, right at that moment, verse 31, some Pharisees come to give Jesus a warning of sorts. And perhaps they are slightly self-serving here. They don't really like him. They want him to go away. And perhaps they're on a message, they're on, a, on, a, on an assignment from Herod. Jesus assumes, actually, they're going to go back and talk to Herod. So we're not exactly sure what their angle here is, but they give him a warning that they assume he will care about. Herod, he's the local Roman-approved Jewish ruler over the area where Jesus had been ministering. Herod, the guy who killed John the Baptist, was wondering about you. He's come to a conclusion. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' reply does not downplay the danger, just downplays the importance of the danger. It won't scare him away. They assume that he wants to stay alive, which is a fair assumption. They assume that whatever Jesus is about, it involves him staying alive to continue doing it. And he has a slightly different angle on that. And responds, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. What's he saying? Well, from our vantage point, any mention of the third day kind of like trips us. We, we kind of see that and something kind of rises up in us because we connect that to something else that happened shortly on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead after Herod through Pilate actually did kill him. So there are some connections there and it's possible Jesus is hinting at something. But that can't be his main reason because that would not have made any sense to the Pharisees or to Herod at the time. He's responding to a, a threat or a warning that's at least in part designed to get him to turn away, to, to leave from here, to stop this, to stop pressing on what you're doing and go. They want him to stop out of fear for his life. And so he responds by saying something that's a rejection of that threat and that goal. Go tell him I'm going to carry on. I'm going to keep on doing what I've been doing. I'm going to keep on teaching, casting out demons, healing people today and tomorrow. In other words, for a little while. He doesn't mean literally just today and tomorrow. It means for this little short while. 
And then right after that, I'll finish my course. That's coming soon, a few days from now. I'm not done yet. Verse 31, 33, I'm not done yet. I have to keep pressing on. I'm not stopping. And notice exactly how he says this. 33, it's more than just a statement of what's going to happen. Like, I know the future. It's a statement about what must happen. He says, I must go on my way. Literally, it is necessary. I must go on my way these days. That's the language that the Bible uses to communicate to us divine necessity. Appointed plan. Something that's fixed. I must go on my way for the next short while because... I can't turn away. That, that's, that's not possible because God's plan is different. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. That's his reason. He's revealing what he understands. Jesus is revealing what he understands his course to be. That course he's going to finish. He's revealing what he understands God's assigned path. The path that he wants Jesus to run. The path he's going to finish. It's necessary that I carry on and end up in Jerusalem because that's where the prophets die. And I'm going to die. That's what the finishing of my course looks like. He is consciously embracing. There's no, there are no other alternatives. This is the way it is. I am consciously embracing the course laid out for me. There is no accident here. There is no afterthought. There is, in fact, divine plan from God Deliberate, fixed, predestined. We want to use the word the church prayed, actually, in Acts 4, talking about this very same thing. This after the cross, after the resurrection, the churches begin to be persecuted, and they pray in Acts chapter 4, pray to God, truly in this city, they say, praying, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's the church praying to God, saying that everything that's happened here was according to your hand and your plan, predestining it. It was necessary. His journey to Jerusalem his death there, the deliberate plan of God. And Jesus clearly knows it full well. He knows it. And with great resolve, he embraces it. The determination that we see here in Jesus is clear and it is profound, knowing what's coming. He's unable to be moved. And we can look at that and we can say, there is something, we, we, and there's something, I'm going to dismiss this in a second, but there is something too, looking at it and saying, that's some remarkable determination. That's, that's some remarkable obedience to the plan of God. That's some remarkable willingness. I wish that I could. I see that in Jesus, and I wish that I could. Lord, would you help me to be that kind of 
person with that kind of determination, that kind of resolve. When I see something hard in front of me that I know is God's will for me, I step into it like that and I embrace it like, like Jesus did. Something to that. But that's not why it's here. There is determination, sure, yes. There is resolve, yes. There is obedience, yes. But why is Jesus like this? Not to model it for us. You see it implied here, but it's, it's more clear in Hebrews 12. If you think about Hebrews 12, verse 2, why did Jesus reach out and embrace the cross? For the joy set before him, says Hebrews 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Almighty in heaven. In God's plan, this is yet, this cross, this death in, in Jerusalem of Jesus is yet one more step, one final successful step in God's persistent effort to save a people to himself and make for himself a kingdom of glory. Jesus talks about it over the centuries, how often he has sent messengers and prophets, sent and called and sent and called, attempting to gather together people like a hen would gather her chicks. We'll talk more about that later. He's attempted to call throughout the centuries to gather people to himself, but it never worked. They always drove away the messenger, to, drove away, to drive away God. But now, here's this great prophet who would, otherwise, who would likewise be killed and driven away, He'd be despised and rejected, but he knows that in this despising and in this rejecting and in this driving away and this killing of this prophet, here's the wisdom and the power of God that actually is going to fix, is going to accomplish what God's been trying to do for centuries. He sees it hung in front of him, this prize at the end of the race. So he's going to finish that course with resolve. He's going to reach out and grab hold of the cross finish the race so as to get the prize at the end. He is unwilling to be deterred, Jesus is. He is unwilling to flinch, to be intimidated by, unwilling to be scared off by threat of death, or in fact certain promise of death, because he is unwilling to go without a kingdom and without a bride. He is unwilling to see God's honor not vindicated, God's righteousness not established, God's justice not accomplished. He is unwilling to see all of that lost, not reached, not attained. And so for joy that all of that would be for him, he reaches forward and with resolve grabs hold of the cross and pulls it to himself to get the prize at the finish. Do you see the unwillingness of Jesus here? And marvel at it. Because in that unwillingness is all the hope that you need. In that unwillingness of Jesus to go without that, that people, without that kingdom, Without that God glory displayed, unwilling to go without that, he reaches forward and grabs it. And in that unwillingness, you have what you need. You and I, we are marked by our desperate inability. This is what we are. We are, we are a collection, of, we are a collection of, of weak failures. 
it is appropriate to be positive about what God has made us to be, indeed. But in the larger scheme of things, we are a collection of weak failures. We cannot make ourselves, we cannot sustain ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot overcome our blindness, and we cannot, we cannot even then once brought into the kingdom, we cannot protect ourselves, and we cannot keep ourselves faithful and obedient. We cannot. And you got to get there. The resolve, the determination of Jesus, the unwillingness of Jesus to go without a people, without a kingdom, is, is less impressive until you come and, and you actually sit in the place and saying, I can't. I can't do squat that matters. And in there I realize... I'm trying to hold on to life that runs through my fingers like sand. I can't. And then Jesus says, I am unwilling to see this lost. Or to turn around and make it positive. I put it unwilling to kind of be different, right? I am determined to see it succeed. You can't. I can. And I will. That's why in his unwillingness, or conversely, in his determination, his resolve, is, is the hope that you need. Because where you can't, he not only says, I can, but I will. He is resolved, I'm going to have a kingdom. And it will be glorious. And you'll be in it, you who believe. You who are mine, Christian, you'll be in it. You can't, I know that. It's not possible with you, but it's possible with me. And I will. He will not. He is unwilling to see the mission assigned to him fail. So where we can't save ourselves, he saves us. Where we can't secure ourselves, he secures us. Where we cannot shelter and bring ourselves home into all of God's shalom peace, he shelters, he carries us all the way home. Where we cannot keep ourselves faithful, he remains faithful to us, holds us to him, puts faith in us and makes sure that it grows by the power of his Spirit. He is unwilling that we be destroyed. This determination, this resolve, or flip it around, this unwillingness of Jesus is what tells us how to interpret all of the life that you live. This is what sits behind, this is what makes real the great promise that having given us Jesus, he gives us everything else that we need. He's given us Jesus. He's given you Jesus a Savior, and with him life, and with him everything that you need. Always doing you good. It's what's in Romans 8, if you think about the logic of Romans 8, he gave you Christ. Christ who does what? Christ who gets himself a kingdom and a people, which means gets you, which means saves you, shelters you, protects you, and therefore makes all things that happen to you, turns them to be good to you. Tells you how to interpret life. All that happens to you, every single thing in it, 
Though they may mean it for evil, God means it for good. In every single thing that happens to you, God is at work resolved to build his kingdom in you and to build his kingdom with you. So you can say, you must be working out of me something that needs to be worked out. You must be working into me something that needs to be worked in. You must be positioning me now to secure for myself an eternal glory that far outweighs all of this. You must be doing that because you will not lose the kingdom. You can think that, and it's true. It's true. He will accomplish the saving purpose for which he was sent. He's resolved to do it. That's why he reaches out and grabs hold of the cross and pulls it to himself or pulls himself to it to overcome everything that would stand between him, his people, and his kingdom. That is, everything that would stand between you and him and the kingdom. The resolve of Jesus is your hope. That's the first part of the passage. I will not be deterred. I'm going to press on and finish. Knowing what it is, I must do it. And then it's almost as if at the mention of Jerusalem, Jesus' thought turns. And we see the resolve of Jesus and then the sorrow. Here's the second point. God is sorrowed over hard-heartedness and its tragic consequences. God is sorrowed over hard-heartedness and its tragic consequences. Verse 34, as Jesus speaks, we get the word and therefore the heart perspective of God. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The language is, is leaking with emotion. This is, this is how we speak when we are perplexed and heartbroken, not stern and angry. Perplexed and heartbroken. The hard sections have transitioned here now to the, the sorrow as Jesus reflects on what the hard means. How God feels about what's coming. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. Plural prophets, plural sent ones. How often across the centuries God's called out to the city to appeal to them for what purpose? What were we just talking about? For saving purposes. He called out to them with the tender heart of a hen wanting to gather chicks under her wing. Not The image here is, is helpful. It's not, it's not like a king trying to rally his soldiers. It's appropriate in some settings, but it's too warrior-like here. And it's not even better, but not even the heart of a shepherd gathering sheep. That's not intimate enough. You know, the human and the animal are too different to, to get across what he wants to see or a real, a real connection. This is more like a mother and a young child. But better because the, the two little animals here are so vulnerable and so tender. It, it would almost make you go, aw. You know, it's a sweet 
And the, the weighing thing is different than what people can do to other people. He would gather them in. She would gather them in, taken in and covered up by the wings, drawn to herself. They can feel the warmth of her body and sheltered from the outside cold, hidden even from sight, let alone from attack from the outside. It's a picture of what, of what God has wanted to do has called people to over the centuries that his saving purposes have been to call out, to call out, to call out for the sake of, of warmth, personal connection, sheltering, sheltering intimacy. And tragic hardness of heart has met this again and again and again. But you would not, he says. You wanted nothing to do with me. With me, the one who made you and sustained you and protected you and taught you a good law and placed you in a good land and has been mercifully patient with you when you strayed again and again and again and again and again and again. again. I didn't utterly destroy you. I disciplined you and attempted to call you back in love for your good. And you wanted nothing to do with me. With me. The tragedy, the suicidal folly of it. So God's angry then? No. He's not. In other contexts, you can see the anger of God over sin. Yes, 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 but not here. What's pressed to us here, pressed home to us here, is he's heartbroken. Why? Because he actually cares about people. This is not abstract theology. The God who is cares about people. And he thoroughly, completely knows the breadth and the depth of all that is meant by Jesus's unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He knows what he means when he says, outside there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You have done what you have wanted, he says. You have waded through an ocean of merciful, patient, compassionate love in order to reach sorrow and frustrated pain, and you will have it. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, there's the authority of Jesus again. This is the way it is. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying here. And clearly being forsaken is about bad news. But what exactly does he mean? What is he getting at here? Well, remember the context. You've got to kind of move through the context to, to understand it clearly for us. He's speaking in a very, very ethnically Jewish-filled context here. That's what his audience is. He's talking about Jewish ruler Herod, Pharisees, Jerusalem, the messenger sent by God, the prophets, throughout all this long, long Old Testament history of the prophets coming and being rejected. That's all the, the, the context there. And what happened in the Old Testament finally, you know, 
What happened in the Old Testament finally, after the long, 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 and I mean centuries long, sending of messengers and sending of prophets and rejection, rejection, rejection. What happened? See the pattern here. I send a prophet, you reject him, and what happens? Exactly what I said would happen. What I said to my messenger Moses, I will dwell, my presence will dwell in your midst in the house in Jerusalem, in the temple. I'll dwell in the midst of you. Unless and until it finally comes time for judgment and then, as he said, and this is what happened, his presence would depart from the temple. He would move out of the house and leave it to them. I'm out. Have the house. It's yours. I forsake it. And as he abandons, forsakes the temple, of course, he abandons and forsakes the city and the people. And they fall into judgment and are cast out of the land into exile in Babylon where there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth. That happened. He sends a messenger, sends a prophet. And instead of, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 26 from happier times in the Psalms, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. In that psalm, they are receiving worshipers. They are receiving a, a man, a priest, or a king leading people up to the temple to worship. They are receiving him. That's happier times, but instead of that, these messengers are sent away, and what happens? The house is forsaken. Judgment. That's what's about to happen in the context, in that time, Jesus is saying, this is imminent. And here now is the greatest prophet, the final one sent. Here's the messenger and the call. How will we respond? Because what comes next in the pattern is forsaken and lost. He says this in the context to a particular people, an, an ethnic group in a, in a particular city and land. But this is not just his message to ancient Israel, it is to all of us. You will never see me. You will never have fellowship with me. You will never sit at the kingdom feast with me unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Unless you receive me as the one sent in God's name, as God come in flesh, unless you receive me as I am, you will not have me and you will sit forsaken. So in this sense, this is exactly the same point we have been seeing in the previous chapters. It's the same hard point. But there's a little more here. 
obviously, clearly in that, there is the warning and the call. Do not resist this messenger. Do not cast out this messenger, but hear him and receive him. And say from your own heart, blessed are you, you who comes in the name of the Lord. Then you will see Christ. That's similar, but there's some more new here. Don't miss that. Don't turn away, and don't let yourself be turned away by others. That's an important point to consider from this passage. You look again at verse 14. I'm sorry, not 14, 34. Hard to read these days. 34. Obviously, the city is standing in for people, but exactly which people? Follow this closely. God speaking wants to gather in Jerusalem's children, but Jerusalem would not allow it. Not the children didn't allow it, Jerusalem didn't allow it. So you got two categories here. There's a subtle distinction. Jerusalem, that is the capital city, the, the religious center, the governmental center. It's the place where you'd find Herod, and at this moment he's present there, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling council, the leadership. You've got a, a leadership, kind of like we might talk about Washington. What do we mean? We mean the government. You've got the leadership I wanted to gather in your children, but you wouldn't let it. This is very similar to what Jesus says in the woe of Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I wanted to gather in your children, but you wouldn't let it which obviously doesn't mean that people stopped God, that Jesus was powerless to save them, or that people weren't able to think for themselves. They just had to do whatever the leaders said. But the point is, leadership opposed him because they were threatened. And they led the people away from the Messiah. They shut the door of the kingdom and said, do not look behind the curtain, pay no attention to him over there. They blocked and led people away. And then the end result is that with the house forsaken and the city forsaken, everybody's forsaken. Hear this. For some of us here, we still experience this today. Religious leaders, religious institutions still act like this manipulating and threatening and deceiving and teaching people to just stay right here and don't actually consider the Jesus of the Bible. Stay here. And they shut the door on the kingdom. And if you won't think, you'll miss it with them. Jesus, in other places, speaks very strongly. I just quoted from Matthew. He calls them hypocrites, pronounces woe on them, those leaders. But here, as he looks at this, he says, this is a tragedy. 
people who, who might perhaps give a listen and think about it and be inclined towards instead are, are more inclined, more drawn by religious leaders or institutions or other family members or co-workers or, or the opportunity for a job and say, I'm going to pursue that instead and I will not pay attention to. And so they are successfully led astray and they miss the kingdom. What a tragedy. Don't let that happen to you. Be alert to the fact that sometimes those around you may seek to hold you away, to lead you astray, because you've got something to lose by it, frankly. So don't do that. This, that's very important to consider. And it's, it's unique to this passage, different from the previous passage, the role of leadership in influencing people away. But the largest thing that's unique to this passage is the open emotion of God. Here is sorrow in God. And we have to stop and think about that. Not in the sense, like we sometimes in dealing with kids, we shouldn't deal with this, but we do sometimes. We say, look how you made Sally cry. That's wrong, don't do that. Not to use the emotion to drive behavior. And not, I, I actually heard somebody preach this. I heard somebody preach this after 9-11 years ago. Jesus, you must be weeping. What can we do to help you feel better? Not, Jesus, the emotion of God. How can we help God to not sorrow? Or how can we use the sorrow of God to drive behavior and change? No. We should notice this because it tells us about the character of God and the big, good, beautiful, attractive heart that is the creator and ruler of the universe. A big, big, good heart that looks at weeping and gnashing and perishing and weeps over it. Is there a a high and holy and exalted and almighty God. Indeed there is. Isaiah saw him holy, 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 and the whole temple is thundering. And as the smoke fills it, he falls down in front of him. This is the holy, holy, holy God. Indeed. And that same God, Isaiah would have been shocked by this, and that same God did not regard that kind of royal worship as something to be held on to, but instead humbled himself and became a man, humbled himself and became a human man, serviliation of a naked crucifixion. Because of brokenheartedness in the heart of God. And the high and holy and almighty heart of God. It is not either or, it is both. This is the Lord. Who takes no pleasure, but in fact, weeps over the death of the wicked. This is a God who is good, who has a heart that is big and is attractive and beautiful. Who is almighty and humble, who reigns forever and died on a cross, who is always joyful and was weeping in a man of sorrows, who was brokenhearted at the awful scourge of sin and its maniacal twisting of people made in his image, 
and in great love came to do something about that. So that he can do more than just call out to you, come and be sheltered under my wings, but can actually effectively change you and draw you in. This is the God who reveals himself as straightforward and righteous and true and mercifully patient and compassionate and sorrowed over sin and its consequences, sorrowed over hard-heartedness and its consequences. He is a wonderful God. It is indeed true. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is a blessed God. And he has come to save And he will get it done. And seeing that this is who he is, does not that draw your heart? Does that not make you want to say, I'm yours here? Does that not give you reason to believe you will give me life? I'll have to lay it all down indeed, and there will be an apparent immediate loss, but I believe that that, if that's you, you will not rip me off, but you will give to me what I need. The God who is, the God who calls you, the God who can be trusted. He's the God of almighty, holy righteousness and the God of imminent personal care and love who shelters you under his wings. Let me pray. Almighty God, you are complex. It is sometimes hard for us to think about how you can be all that you are. And probably we can't understand all of that because of what we are. But in times and ways and in places you show us something and here you show us that while indeed the truths of salvation and judgment are are real, You sit on a throne and you reign and you enact justice. But you are also sorrowed over hard-heartedness. Would you help us, Lord, to grasp this picture of you and to see in it your goodness and the largeness of your heart and be won by that. Will you win people to yourself by that? Will you draw us to repentance with this kindness? Draw us in. Maybe some who have not ever come to you and those of us who are believers here today and perhaps wander, perhaps inclined to go our own ways. Draw us back. Shelter us under your wings. Thank you for your goodness, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 
943-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.